Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ask Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, something that's super associated with the Middle Ages is knights on horseback. They Yay. wear shiny armor, they swing swords around, they probably have plumes in their helmets, right? They joust. Yes. It's I mean, a- certainly in movies. Yes. Yeah. It's exactly <laughs> like Medieval Times, the adventure theme restaurant. That Yes. <laughs> Are there okay. dinner theater? Yes, you know? dinner theater yeah. that exists in like Rosemont, Illinois, outside of Chicago. Yep, and possibly other places. Um, other places too, I think. Yeah, okay. I think there are a few of them. All right. Um, and they had a code of conduct that they abided by, which was called chivalry. In theory. In theory, yes. <laughs> And um, this probably governed things like who they killed or whether eh, they kind of. bathed or... I don't know. It actually sort turns of. out... <laughs> I don't know that much about chivalry. Yes. Oh, th- th- it well, made them open doors for pretty ladies and pay well, for dinner? <laughs> in the modern <laughs> day. Yes. Um, so today we're going to address this and talk about what exactly yes. is chivalry. Yes. Yeah. Um, so this is the problem, of course. That, of course, today, knights in shining armor, it's a, you know, I mean, it's a cliche. It's an ideal. It does actually show up in movies and in literature. Um, and both, in re- you know, both really, sometimes you have actual... Knights in shining armor, which means men in shining armor on horseback, although it's probably prop armor, but real horses. Um, and sometimes you have the metaphoric knight on shining armor. <laughs> yes. Or in shining armor played on by, the white horse. Uh, Colin Firth, usually. Yes. Um, who yes, swoops exactly. in and res- rescues yes. some poor lady from the drudgery of, like, having to go to work in a nondescript office job because most people who write films <laughs> never had a real job. I don't know. So they don't know what you do in an office, but yeah. I mean, I think most of them spent probably too much time in offices. <laughs> and so this was the dream that yes. someone would come rescue you. I um, mean, it's, that's fair. Right. But, um, you do have, White Christmas, the movie, actually, there's this sort of metaphor of Bing Crosby's character being on a white horse, and that sort of shows up again at the end of the movie. Um, so, yeah, so metaphorically it shows up. There are also actual, um, let's see, Snow, no, what is it, something in The Huntsman? Oh, yes. Anyway, um, that was... <laughs> Angelina Jolie the movie. and the Huntsman. No, no. Um, this is Kristen Stewart. Um, and there was a sequel that I have only kind of seen. Um, <laughs> but Snow White and the Huntsman, um, twenty twelve. I just looked it up. Twenty twelve movie. Okay. 
Um, and basically the only reason I bring it up <laughs> is because, um, at the end-ish of this movie, um, there's some really wonderful costume work. Um, you do have a, an army of knights <laughs> on horses. Okay. In armor. Um, and the costume work is really wonderful, given what you usually get. Mm-hmm. Um, the same can also, of course, be said of the, you know, um, Peter Jackson Tolkien trilogy. Yes. I haven't seen all of the Hobbits, I have to admit. Whoops. Um, but the, the sort of original trilogy he did, um, you do, you do get some sort of wonderful costume work and armor. Mm -hmm. Um. And this this is really nice. And they did their work. You know, we did a whole sort of England before 1066 discussion before. And I think we mentioned Tolkien was, of course, a medievalist. He wrote about uh, Beowulf. Yes. This is where he got his languages, right? I mean, Ent means giant in Old English. So there, there are those things he throws in. It's why he uses riddles in The Hobbit, the Exeter riddles. Um, but also, you know, just the sort of idea of the mythology that existed, Right, so the the ring cycle is, of course, an old Germanic myth, mm -hmm. um, and he was not pleased by the way Wagner used it, and so he sort of tried to undo that. Okay, but also you wanted to give England its own version mm -hmm. in a lot of ways that would um, stand up, right? I mean, basically stand up to Wagner. Although he did not like the comparison, he sort of didn't want to discuss Wagner, which is fair. Mm -hmm. um, Wagner was proto-fascist. <laughs> That's a huge problem. And that is not what Tolkien saw in these stories. Um, which is why, of course, he had a fellowship of the ring, famously. Um, Rather than that this... one dude. Yes. Siegfried? Siegfried. Yes. Wanders about, eventually and... destroys the ring. <laughs> um, Lots of singing. He doesn't, though. He doesn't. Uh, the... Oh. The, the Rhine means the. Right. Well, not even that. The Rhine floods and the Rhine means reclaim their ring, which was theirs at the beginning. Oh. It gets stolen from them at the beginning. That's the first one. Right. I remember that. <laughs> That's about the Rhine. Part. I probably yes. paid attention for that, that portion. Yeah. Well, that one, it's only like two and a half hours and it doesn't okay. have an intermission. It's a short prologue. A sh yeah. For a vodka, um. two and a half hours is very restrained. It's very brief. Very brief, yeah. The man could go on. Um, and did. I mean, <laughs> let's be fair. <laughs> yes. And I've seen them all. I just want to say yes. I sat through, you know, the six-hour Meistersinger that the Met did a few years ago with James Morris was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. It was phenomenal. But, and it has, you know, it's like 50 minutes worth of intermissions in that case. But that still means the whole thing's five hours and 20 minutes or something. Yeah. Anyway. It feels excessive. Because um, I, think, I think it was, I mean... 40, 40 minutes, 50 minutes. Do they have, like, extra horn players waiting in the wings to tag in when your faces well, in the first set starts to go numb? Yeah, this is the joke, of course, because Bayreuth, which is the yeah, the festival for Wagner, but which is set up so that you can have all of the stuff you wanted in his orchestra. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway... Okay, so yes, we can make much fun of Wagner, but the, the point is, really... <laughs> he's not medieval, he's out of scope. Yes. Um, and he, but he does, this is actually the perfect example, right? Is that Wagner is very much telling 
this is medievalism, Mm -hmm. right? What people think of the Middle Ages and how the people use the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. Versus Tolkien, who is a medievalist. Now, he's also invested in medievalism because obviously um, that, you know, (laughs) right. He did write The Hobbit and The Silmarillion and, you know, all of the Lord of the Ring books. Those are his creation in the modern time, um, which is medievalism. But he was a medievalist, and therefore um, (laughs) he really is trying in a lot of ways to bring that, to bring a lot of those ideas and his interpretation as a scholar of that time into the stories that he's writing now and is trying to refute a lot of the things that he feels are incorrect interpretations, like the idea of the solitary hero, right? Mm -hmm. Which in Wagner does become, right, the sort of the ubermensch, um, the sort of proto-fascist ideal, which is very problematic. Um, You'll also notice as I said, the ring isn't destroyed, right? Someone like Wagner isn't going to destroy that type of power. So the Rhine maidens reclaim the ring. The Lord of the Rings, of course, then opens with the ring being found again in the bottom of the river. Mm. Right? If you, It That's has right. to be destroyed. It, it can never be hidden. It could lie there for a thousand years, but someone's going to find it again. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to actually destroy it. <laughs> yes. Um, Somebody's got to end this chapter... Yes. So now here's, of course, the thing. Um, I sort of started this by saying, like, there's some really good costume work in these things. And they, the helmets, you know, for example, mm-hmm. people who really looked at the stuff, like in the British Museum, um, and the type of armor you had to wear to avoid being split in half by a broadsword. Right. This brings us to the next side of this, of course, which is that um, the knight in shining armor has always been the ideal. So this is the weird part. Mm -hmm. The conversation that sort of Tolkien and Wagner are having in the modern day, this is a conversation that goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. Really? There is the ideal, and then there is the reality. (laughs) And these two things, there was great tension between these two things. Um, So we are going to talk today kind of about the reality, what was chivalry. Mm -hmm. And next time we will talk about the romance. Arthur. Quite literally about the romances. Yes. Yes. Like the Arthurian romances. Yeah. We're going to have to mention them a little bit this time as well, but we're we're going to really get into them next time. Okay. Um, but uh, we'll start with chivalry. What is it? <laughs> um, first off, there's some major books out there. Maurice Keane wrote a book called Chivalry and a lot of other stuff about chivalry. Um, he was kind of the big name mm-hmm. in chivalry, meaning in scholars about chivalry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Richard Kuiper... Um, K-A-E-U-P-E-R, who was kind of the other big name in chivalry. So things like chivalry and violence in medieval Europe. Um, Oh, good title. All right. So, yes. And lots of, I mean, there's been tons written about it, of course, but these are some of the big names that are out there. Um, So first off, we'll just start with chivalry (laughs) comes from old French, essentially chevalier, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Which means... A soldier on horseback. Okay. Right? Um, so the Italian um, cavalleria, right? This is, of course, where we get the word cavalry. Um, and 
Yeah, and of course it originally comes from Latin, um, cabalarius, which was, again, a it could be just someone on horseback. It could be mm-hmm. anyone on horseback. But comes eventually, of course, to mean specifically a soldier on horseback. Is that um, and then in Spanish? Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. And then eventually a... Um, Caballero, maybe. There's two L's. Anyway, an armed sorry. soldier. I mean, a soldier on horseback. This is the other thing, right? A soldier on horseback is always going to be, to some extent, nobility. Mm-hmm. Because you can afford to have a horse that you ride into war, right? You can afford to have a war horse. Right. So if you are a, if you're a soldier on horseback, you're pretty much automatically an, a well-armed soldier on horseback. Right. right. You're not a raggedy soldier on horseback. Now, there are exceptions for sure. We're going to talk about them. But basically, this is why it sort of comes to me, not just someone on horseback, but a soldier on horseback specifically what we come to think of as a knight Mm -hmm. an armed soldier on horseback Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and by armed we don't just mean with a sword we mean with armor right right um all right so so that's literally all it used to mean and like i said we get the word cavalry that comes from this as well um originally like chivalry it could mean it could just mean like a group of armed men on horseback. It could mean just the cavalry, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right? The funny thing about this, maybe not funny, um, this is where we're going to start to get into the contradictions, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. Um, so cavalry today can have this um, ideal meaning as well, right? The same way knight shows up metaphorically, in Mm -hmm. a lot of places, right? Knight in shining armor. Um, Cavalry, right? The idea of the cavalry coming is also a metaphor. It can be real. We could throw back to Tolkien again and, like, the riders of Rohan. (laughs) Sure. Um, But it can also be metaphoric. We could throw, in this case, to the end of Marvel's Endgame. Oh, Um, yes. Where... We get one person on horseback, at least, Valkyrie, but um, most most people not literally on horseback, but it is the moment when the so-called cavalry has arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, so we do use it in that sense, right? In this kind of metaphoric sense of this ideal, you know, group coming to rescue. Um, the reality, of course, is not always that <laughs> and has never been always that. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I figured I'd point out some modern day contradictions and just we'll start to discuss the way that the Middle Ages had these same tensions, right? So we look at this today, the cavalry is coming, um, but there is tremendous tension in that idea because, of course, you have things like, we've talked about Custer before, famously. Ah, yes. (laughs) Um, So Custer is a great example. The American cavalry in general frequently... When they are so-called coming to the rescue, they are riding against Native Americans. Um, there are other instances. So the Civil War, one of the most famous generals in the South is Nathan Bedford Forrest, um, who just got reburied on private land, finally. You know, he what? was publicly buried wherever, and they moved him. Oh. what? Yeah. Why did they move him? Because he was super evil. Um, oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to put it out there. He was super oh, evil. Oh, you don't mean on public um, in a public cemetery. You mean he was just buried, like, as a monument, and they moved him somewhere yeah. else. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. I was like, but he was buried. No, no, no. no. He was buried like in a special thing. Okay. And they were like, we're going to rebury him. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Probably. Um, Is he the forest? I just saw this because I looked it up. It just happened. Yeah, Nathan Nathan Bedford Forrest. He um, raised the. I mean, he had his own cavalry because he raised the Mm. money for it. He has been considered a a genius um, as a commander. Mm hmm. Maybe he wasn't quite as far as people thought, but he certainly did a lot. I mean, you know, he did very well as a cavalry commander, for sure. sure. Um, but he was a horrific human being. He was responsible for a huge massacre of soldiers, predominantly African-American soldiers, Union soldiers, obviously, um, at Fort Pillow. Um, and we actually have talked before kind of about the Crusades. We'll come back to those this time around. But um, the moment when, you know, there's the sort of... Um, kill them all and God will know his own moment. Right. Right. You know, um, so, (laughs) right. You have the crusades, like the Albigensian crusade. We'll talk about the crusades actually to Jerusalem this time around as well. Um, and this is a similar moment, right? Um, Nathan Bedford Forrest, not viewing African-American soldiers as soldiers, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and he's then, after the war, he's elected the first Grand Wizard of the KKK, who famously think of themselves as knights. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's where it comes from. Um, and in one of the most famous movies in American cinema, D.W. Griffith's... Um, first, Griffith himself is the inventor of a ton of stuff that is foundational to movies. Mm-hmm. So it, it's impossible to make a movie today without using something that he invented. <laughs> and this is problematic in certain ways, just because um, he did a, he created a lot of really racist, horrible movies. Right. Um, and so the language of film, just some of the inventions that he came up with, you know, he did like the first tracking shots, the first maybe cutaways. And we've actually mentioned him before, I think, Judith of Bethulia. Yeah. Um, I think it's um, similar to... Uh, Lenny Lenny Reifenstahl, probably? Yes, yes. In terms of yeah. being super influential and also evil. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we talked about how she got honored in the Oscars montage. Um, like one person away from Elliot Kazan. Oh my god. Yeah, which was just the, the one of the weirdest moments the Oscars has ever had. <laughs> And after that, they made the applause line silent, so you couldn't tell that people, like, because people suddenly stopped applauding. They were like, what? Hmm. Um, Anyway, yeah, so Griffith, um, in this case, we're talking specifically of Birth of a Nation, where the KKK is seen as the metaphoric, but almost literal, right? Because they are in white, of course, white sheets um, on horses as the the cavalry coming, coming to save the day. Right. Um, so that tension in that idea of what a knight should be versus the reality of the way that sometimes knights are, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that is the thing that has also always been around. Right. It very right. much depends on which side you're on as to whether the yes, arrival of the cavalry. Um, yes. I mean, yeah. if you're retelling the story of the uh, that siege in... Lord of the Rings, from the point of view of the orcs, the sunrise right. on the third day, look to the east, was not a super happy moment. 
like it was for the rest of us in the theater. Exactly. Although, of course, they are the ones attacking the keep. Like, yeah, they but, you know. could just go home. Uh, but this is the problem. So here we have, right, the tensions within chivalry. You have peace versus war, mm-hmm. right? Ostensibly, you're supposed to keep the peace. The problem is you can only make your name in war, or at least uh-huh. in violence. Yes. Right? <laughs> you don't those, get a good things- reputation as a fighter if you're just, like... Hanging around a bar. Keeping the peace. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a problem. Um, another problem is, of course, chivalry. When we say chivalry, we tend to think of, you sort of start at the beginning, right? Things like the opening of the door, you know, throwing your coat over a puddle, whatever it is, right? Um, and, of course, you know, so these very well-mannered. Um, the problem is that, again, you have to make your reputation by, like, cutting people in half in battle. <laughs> right? Right. Um, so I bring up Macbeth at this moment, um, where we hear, right, Macbeth, um, you know, in fighting one of the guys he's fighting, he unseamed him from the nave to the chops. Um, that That is a sign of his prowess in battle. Mm-hmm. That is supposed to make him worthy. Now, Shakespeare, of course, writing this, is pointing out that inherent tension. That the thing that this guy does that's supposed to make him seem so worthy and trustworthy is something that should really kind of also make you afraid at how bloodthirsty he is. <laughs> right. And that is a huge freaking problem. Right? Like, how can you be both of these things? It is a contradiction to be the guy who does that on the battlefield and is then completely calm and sweet and kind <laughs> and trustworthy in all other places. Right? Like... Ah, that does give you a kind of weird split personality. No wonder Macbeth starts to, you know, <laughs> go a little bit out of it. Yes. Right? Some hallucinations. Um, Etc. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so there is this huge tension, right? Um, and therefore, right, um, there, there are absolutely <laughs> problems in real life with knights committing atrocities, mm-hmm. right? So there are plenty of examples. To come back to Shakespeare and Henry V, we have the moment when um, all the boys guarding the supplies are killed. Um, that was a real thing. And it had always been a real thing. I mean, committed atrocities. And for a long time, historians, actually, and I mean, modern historians, so I guess not for a long time, but for the past couple hundred years or so, <laughs> Um, historians looking to the past, right, you'd get these accounts of battles where there are these horrible atrocities, right, where villages were slain, all this stuff. And they'd say, oh, well, that must have been done by, like, the rabble, right? The sort mm-hmm. of lowly peasant soldiers who were uncouth and rough and blah, blah, but not by the noble knights. Right. Of course it was done by the knights. Right. The peasants were wandering around with, like, pikes or whatever. Right. <laughs> this sharp piece of wood. It's not yes. that effective. Right. And the knights are swinging through on horses with huge swords and probably torches and setting fire to stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, not to mention also collecting gold and ransoms if they can. Right. I mean, stealing stuff is what they're doing. They're stealing stuff. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so and it's, it's quite obvious. And the thing is, there are actually a lot of instances 
I mean, we've talked about some of them, obviously, but um, in other episodes, but there are a lot of instances in which orders will be given for slaughter. And in some cases, people are later um, really do have a hard time living some of that down. I mean, some mm-hmm. of those moments really become infamous. So that that's true. Um, but there's this problem, right? Like, you make your reputation in war. Um, it's also, it is a great place to make money. You steal as much as you can, and then you capture anyone who might have money and you ransom them. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, like, you know, um, if a village surrenders without a fight because they hope to save all their stuff, that's not super cost effective for the knights who are maybe looking to get something out of this experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there is this there is this huge tension. Um, and there is this this same problem with, right, the ideal versus sometimes it even doesn't depend necessarily which side you're on. Sometimes it's just a thing that, like, knights, groups of knights are sometimes doing very bad things. Um, and so you have specific sort of moments, um, tournaments, for example, Mm -hmm. right? Jousting in tournaments. Um, originally they get more and more codified as time goes on. Mm -hmm. Um, but initially they are basically battles where you, more or less just aren't supposed to kill anyone who isn't a knight. (laughs) Right. You're not supposed to kill observers, bystanders, whatever, but other people are sort of fair game. Um, And eventually they start to be more and more codified to the point you're really not supposed to kill your opponent because ultimately it's clearly wasteful just because there's not a war on having your knights kill each other is not a good thing because eventually there might be a war again. There definitely will be. Mm-hmm. And you don't want some of them to have killed each other randomly in a tournament because you will need them to go out and fight the enemy, right? Sure. So um, so tournaments become slowly sort of codified. But they are also there to try and frequently keep knights from... I mean, they're there to sort of keep the peace sometimes, mm-hmm. right? To discourage knights who are frequently nobles at various levels and who might you know, when there is not a war on, where there's a slightly distant enemy, they might be tempted to start fighting each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Francis of Assisi <laughs> is captured in a war initially. Um, you know, this just being fought across the, the plain, right? Assisi and Prussia are fighting, right? They're oh. two different city-states, and they're fighting it out between each other. Um, that's fine, you know, but really, you want to save it so, like, you can get together against Siena or something, right? Like, sure. ideally, you want to be banding together and fighting people who are further away. Um, and so tournaments could be a way to keep regions from destroying each other <laughs> because their lords wanted to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, but again, there's this weird tension between you're trying to keep the peace, but you're doing it by kind of allowing people to, to fight. Um, it, and as it slowly becomes codified, so, so the point that, like, you shouldn't really be killing each other, um, then you get weird stuff like, well, if you can't kill each other, can you kill the horse? Because, um, mm. you know, how do you definitively know that you've right. won? Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, it's not so, just, like, if you can knock them off their horse, maybe. Right. 
Well, there's that. But of course, doing that does carry with it the possibility that you will impale them on your lance or, you know, break their neck or their back or something when you knock them off. True. Or when they land, you know. Right. You you are (laughs) falling with like, you know, quite a lot of very heavy armor on potentially. Yes. And that great, you know, can you imagine you're galloping towards each other? Mm hmm. So, you know, if you run your car into something at, like, 15 miles an hour, it's not great. And imagine that you're wearing a steel plate on your chest, and what you crashed into at 15 miles an hour is a big pointy stick. Like, that's going to leave a mark. (laughs) Hmm. Um, Okay. And, of course, you know, really, there are two horses galloping each other. Like, I'm saying 15 miles an hour... Maybe it could be faster. I'm not quite sure, really. But that seems like a good sure. good amount. Um, but yeah, you're crashing into each other with these pointy things. You're wearing a ton of, you know, not an actual ton, but you're wearing pounds and pounds and pounds of armor, probably. Um, yeah, the force at which it takes to unhorse you, particularly because you're probably, you're in a saddle that really ties you in, kind of. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, there, there's the raised bits to really keep you in on the horse to begin this with. Is, this is like the horse equivalent of those velodrome at the Olympics where you get strapped onto your bike. Kind right? of, yeah. yeah. So the force it takes to, like, lift you out is pretty significant. Um, and people absolutely got injured, of course. Right. I mean, and did, did get killed. Even, even in tournaments where they weren't supposed to. Mm-hmm. People sometimes did. Right. Um... So this is a problem. <laughs> you have to do it, but you don't want to waste your men. But you also don't want them to fight against each other in actual little battles. Because then you're not only wasting your men, but also some of your peasants, probably. And you're probably laying waste to your areas you might right. need to grow food and stuff. So these were sort of... So there are all these weird issues surrounding tournaments. Um, and finally, the final side of this in a lot of ways is the church, which... Did not, which really supported knights who fought for the church, but theoretically okay. did not support bloodshed otherwise. <laughs> no, no killing unless it's on um, our terms. Yes. It sounds about right. Which, of course, itself is problematic because you gotta practice, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're gonna be the best, you have to get your reputation somehow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there are huge tensions here. Okay. Um, and of course, one of the things that ends up happening is mercenaries. Aha. Right? Yes. Um, because this was a good solution for everybody <laughs> on some level. Um, knights who wanted to really make that their profession could go off and make money fighting. Um, and at this point, we're getting to knights who might not be nobility. You might be working mm-hmm. your way up to the nobility by being a really good mercenary. Okay. Um, but, you know, you, yeah, you'd go off and fight. You'd make money fighting. You would fight where there were wars, so you aren't wasting things. The problem, like yourself or your men or whatever, right? You're not laying waste to your own land. You're going off. The problem is, of course, that now you are possibly running afoul of another aspect of chivalry, which is loyalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is because now you might, you're taking money from people who might not be enemies of your country or your religion, but they might be, first mm-hmm. of all. <laughs> um, and that's a little bit dangerous. And even if they're not, 
you know, you're fighting for one side against another side that isn't a side that you are seen as having a direct attachment to. So where do your loyalties lie? Will they lie with anyone who pays you? Mm -hmm. What if your country needs you and someone else is willing to pay you a lot to fight against your country? Will you do it? Um, So these are the problems. This is why you have to be in the French Foreign Legion for 10 years before they give you French citizenship. Exactly. Yes. Um, Yeah. That's, you know. um, And obviously, you know, it has always kind of worked like that. Um, Obviously, people who are in the U.S. Army should get citizenship. Uh, Rome gave citizenship to people who fought for them. Mm -hmm. You know, so it goes all the way back to Rome. Yeah. Um, But it is a question of loyalty, right? If you prove your loyalty, great. And the thing, of course, with mercenaries is that you're always being paid. And so there's some very famous stories of people double-crossing each other because of who's paying them more. Um, But then there are other people. uh, Sir John Hawkwood was kind of famous. Um, He fought a lot in Italy. He's English, but he fought a lot in Italy. Um, And they really liked him. There's a... um, They made him like a monument because... You always knew who he was fighting for. So he switched sides, but he did not double cross. If someone Mm. else was willing to pay him more, he let it be known that he had now been paid more by the other side and was switching sides. (laughs) And this was seen as honorable, which in a sense it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I like it. So, yes. So um, there's a lot of... um, This is actually fun. Terry Jones wrote a book called Chaucer's Night, where he speculates that John Hawkwood might be one of the... um, I mean, essentially, one of the mercenaries on whom Chaucer's Knight is based. You know, um, he feels he feels like probably, a NASCAR driver, honestly. Like, somebody else yeah. gives him a big pile of money, he just <laughs> slaps a new logo on, and he's like, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. And mercenaries, of course, are how wars were fought up until basically the modern day. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, the Revolutionary War. There are a lot of mercenaries. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the the point right, right. <laughs> you know um, the idea of having count- a st- i mean he's um, not he's kind he of he wasn't exactly a mercenary um mercenaries were more fighting for the british because mm. they could pay sure um the americans that was actually the problem is that americans really needed help and so france was willing to help the u.s um as a country right which is where lafayette comes from comes into the picture. Um, France is willing to help because um, they are fighting the English. That was the sense of your enemy. I mean, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, mm-hmm. I guess. Right. So France was willing to side with the U.S. against the British because the French are always fighting the British. Yes. But the British were paying mercenaries. Yeah. Um, but the U.S. did have soldiers who weren't necessarily born born here. So, yeah, Lafayette and the French, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also um, the Polish... What did he end up... Oh, yeah, that guy. Who trained the army. Yeah. I um, don't... And so, yeah. I don't so there I were definitely... Um, pronounce his name. Uh, Tadeusz Kochysko. Maybe. Um, yeah. And um, and then also on Von Steuben, mm-hmm. um, who was not only, um, yeah, Baron Von Steuben, um, who was probably gay. 
Oh yeah. Stuff. Okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, who also helped out. <laughs> um, and yes, he was Prussian. There you go. Um, yeah. So there were a lot of, um, you know, I mean, because the U.S., of course, kind of a land of immigrants, you could come oh. over and help out. Kazmir Pulaski also, right? Yes, Pulaski. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and also um, known as the father of the American cavalry. Yes. Yeah. Along. Um, and the really fun thing about um, Pulaski also is that because of um, how many Polish people immigrated specifically to Chicago, Illinois, we always got the day off of school. Yes. Pulaski day. I knew about that <laughs> way before I knew who he actually was. Yes. Yeah. But that's actually, so here we go, right? The reminder of how important that is, right? How important a cavalry is. And it's, it's actually really interesting because the Hundred Years' War between the French and the English, um, which is, you know, one of the things that happened for a big chunk in the Middle Ages, um, the, the knights, Knights on both sides, obviously. Um, and one of the big things about cavalry has usually been the idea that if they get unhorsed, that they are no longer useful. And that knights mm -hmm. particularly, as I said, right, they're wearing so much, the idea was that if they got unhorsed, they were no longer useful. The interesting thing is that this is sometimes true and sometimes not. So throughout the Hundred Years' War, at different, there are times when the English knights do not want to get off their horses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there actually are a fair number of times when they do, and they do fight on foot, very successfully in some cases. Um, and not just the Hundred Years' War, that's one example, but throughout the sort of the Middle Ages. Um, English knights tended to be fairly versatile, comparatively. Mm -hmm. um, and the Hundred Years' War is like 1337 to like 1453 or something. Anyway. <laughs> Slight, slightly um, more than a hundred years? Like, we're rounding... Basic, yes, okay. exactly. Um, but there is this weird sort of sense of um, the French knights being less versatile. Um, and a lot of this is kind of the assumption as to how the English consistently, this is sort of the way historians remember it, and it hasn't really been revised. The English would consistently beat the pants off the French, even though the French theoretically had superior numbers and superior men. Hmm. Um, one of the most famous moments, of course, is Agincourt. <laughs> As memorialized um, in Henry V. Yes. Yes. So back to Shakespeare. Um, but <laughs> Who, although he's a writing, couple generations, you know, like a hundred years later, I assume it's exactly what happened. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, it's not far off because the English lost so few people mm -hmm. and the French so many. I mean, it was, you know, like... There's a route. It's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and before that, so the previous most famous battle that really got eclipsed ultimately by Agincourt because of how famous Agincourt was and then because Shakespeare talks about it. But the previous most famous battle was Cressy, and, um, which was the, the Black Prince fought in. Um, and the sort of um, fascinating aspect of why do the French keep losing these battles. Ultimately, it's worth pointing out the French just out... I mean, the French just keep fighting till they finally win, basically. Mm -hmm. I mean, England finally gives up. Um, so, <laughs> you know. 
But in these battles, right? So the English won the battles that I guess lost the war. But the point is, right, we're talking about knights. Why is it that the French keep losing? And there was some thought, there is still some thought from historians, that the French knights couldn't fight off of horseback. Mm. And so that once they got on horse, then they were just, I guess, sitting ducks. <laughs> I'm mixing my metaphors. But, yeah. um, and, and the English weren't necessarily. And so there is something, there is something that was maybe specifically a little bit different in their fighting styles. Mm-hmm. Um, that the English could fight better unhorsed than the French. Um, but also goes maybe a little bit to say, like, the English, you know, if you're a mercenary, you certainly had to be flexible. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so there is another side to this as well, which is that there are certain things that were required of knights, which we're, we're going to talk about, um, that theoretically were required in real life. So not not just in romances, which we'll talk about next time, but in real life, stuff that knights were supposed to do. And okay. what you're supposed to wear, right? There is a specific, like, you know, there's a lot of stuff you're supposed to wear. And you're supposed to wear it in the right order, and you have to keep it shined. This is why you kind of have to be nobility. Mm-hmm. You just have to have the money to do it. <laughs> yeah. you got to have um, someone that, to probably help you put it on. Yes, this is why you have squires and also wives and daughters, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and I think we've shown before the Luttrell Psalter, where Luttrell, on his horse with, like, his wife and daughter helping him. Yeah. You know, with his stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is also why you had squires who were probably your son or your nephew or someone who then would become a knight afterwards. Um, but yeah, you had all this stuff. And the thing was that sometimes that's not the most practical way to fight. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at a muddy field um, and there's some weird stuff like spring was a really good spring was seen as the time for war. <laughs> right. Winter. Okay. It's terrible weather. There's too much mud and it's nasty. Everyone has to go home. But then spring comes, everything's blooming and happy again, and it's time to go start fighting and winning your honor back. When right? the Dupreli with his sword is shooty, the drought of March has pierced it to the rooty and longing folks yes. to go and fight fight wars. Slice each other up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is worth pointing out, right, that yes, this is spring and Chaucer's Knight has come home to go on pilgrimage, which mm-hmm. is interesting. But um, Chaucer's Knight also, by the way, is wearing what mercenaries sort of would have worn, which is not as much stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so he sort of got just what he needs, hmm. right? Um, the chain, the shirt, the, you know, he has exactly what he needs. He's obviously missing some layers that like a more, you know, a more noble knight or maybe a knight fighting in a tournament would have on. Mm-hmm. But a knight who really is fighting for his job as a mercenary, too much, right? If you get on horse, you got to be able to fight. Drop some layers. Right? Makes sense. Um, so... That's another side, right? <laughs> is that um, there is this sort of interesting sense of what you're supposed to look like, how you're supposed to behave, versus the reality of what it really means to be a knight, which is actually a guy who fights on horseback, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so it's worth mentioning, um, Chrétien de Troyes will come up a lot next time, because um, he's writing in like the second half of the 1100s, um, and he's writing a lot of romances and yeah, we will talk about him. <laughs> um, but one of the, well, one of the, so Percival, who's one of the knights, of course, um, of the 
Arthurian genre. The round table. Yes, all of this. Um, so, uh, Cartan has a, has a Percival. Um, you know, because the thing is, like, you, you find stories about people and then you continue them or write up your own version. And then after you die, other people will probably continue your poem or they will adapt their own version or whatever. So there are a lot mm-hmm. of versions of different things. So sure. anyway, so Cretien's Percival, <laughs> he's got a Percival um, and his Percival, um, which again, right, this is from like the late 1100s. Um, there's a sort of moment in it where Percival is this young, like naive hero at the beginning. Um, and he's hunting and he sees knights in shining armor appear out of the forest. Um, and so later, like he thinks like maybe it's God or something appearing to him or the angels, um, and later he tells his mom, I think, that um, he saw, like, angels in the forest. And she's like, I think the angels you saw are the kind who kill anyone they find. <laughs> and he's like, no, they said they were knights. And she, like, faints, I think, or something. Um, and the point is, you know, the she's terror. Wrong. Yeah. Right. The sort of terror that these strike. And so this is obviously, this is, even though this is a romance, which is about knights, like Percival, um, you do have this commentary, right? Mm-hmm. About, in this case, these knights in shining armor, they look the part, but their behavior is not knight in shining armor appropriate. Mm. <laughs> their behavior is very, very sullied, despite the shiningness of their armor, right? Um, and so this is another side, right? That sometimes when there weren't tournaments, and there weren't lords fighting each other semi-honorably over whatever type of skirmish, you could have knights who are not off being mercenaries. Instead, they were roving their own countrysides, right? Places where they lived. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not exactly where they lived, but, you know, <laughs> they're the country-ish where they live. Um, roaming the countryside, stealing and attacking and stuff. Okay. Um... Which is not great. I mean, basically being highwaymen, essentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Groups of highwaymen. Um, yeah. And so, if you think, you know, Robin Hood, essentially, right? He ah. is seen as a good version of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he is seen as fighting people like the Sheriff of Nottingham, who are seen as the unjust side of this, right? The problem is that there isn't anyone to adjudicate because the leaders are off fighting. Right. Right. The whole problem is that the king, yes, is off fighting a crusade, which theoretically is a just thing to do, but it leaves his country unprotected. Um, and so this is another huge thing about chivalry is that when it said protect the peace, <laughs> obviously we don't mean that like you as a knight aren't supposed to be fighting and killing people, but you are supposed to make sure that the, Area that you are responsible for. You're probably a noble, so are you a lord? Are you a king? Whatever it is, right? However much land you are theoretically responsible for, the people, the peasants who live there, should not have to fear for their lives from random thieves and brigands, you know, right. who are wandering through. Fair. Um, and this is this is a critique on King Richard for going off to a crusade. Is it worth it if it leaves your land open like this mm-hmm. to supposed knights who are basically marauding their own land and who therefore need someone like Robin Hood to be standing up against them for the people? 
Um, the irony being that Robin Hood himself is, you know, the only thing that differentiates him from the evil knights marauding is the fact that he is standing up for the people instead of punishing the people. Right. right. Um, but it's a very fine line, right? You have to sort of be answerable to your own morals, which is kind of a problem, <laughs> obviously. Um, so it is worth pointing out that also sort of throughout the 1100s, um, you get the rise in courts. Um, so ecclesiastical courts um, have been showing up across Europe mm -hmm. because someone has to do something, right? At some point, you can't just be, you know, having everything just go awry. Um, and obviously, you know, heresy and stuff like that. We've talked a lot about heresy. So obviously, ecclesiastical courts have been starting to deal with, they move beyond even just heresy. They start looking a little bit of a wider net. Mm -hmm. um, and even before heresy. I mean, ecclesiastical courts are trying to deal with some of this, but they're not set up to deal with what we would call secular things, nor are they really supposed to, nor are they interested in it necessarily. They're only interested in it um, if they get pillaged. Right. Mm. So, you know, if, if a monastery gets robbed or something, then they're sure. then they're interested in, you know, but otherwise they're, you know, they're not necessarily interested in this. Um, but sort of in England and France, um, you do get the rise of um, courts, of secular courts as well. Um, and so, for example, in England, um, eventually you get to the point where people can go before the king's justices um, and accuse people essentially of disturbing the peace. Mm hmm. Um, and sort of the specification was something like um, that they were wronged by force and arms and against the king's peace. Um, and in France, it was similar, you know, by force and violence and the power of arms or something like this. Um, so eventually, right, this this does start to be something that there is a justice system set up to deal with. Um, the sort of secular or temporal authorities are taking seriously. And of course, that's why you need a you need a strong ruler, right, to stop this stuff. Um, but you start to have a court system, right? So you have start to have a bureaucracy that can sort of come in and try and take care of it. Um, all right. So <laughs> um, what is it that knights are really supposed to be? Um, okay. So modern scholars, and to some extent people in the Middle Ages sort of, but it depends, um had a kind of metaphor that the world was broken up into three groups, the three estates. It's known as the three estates, or the mm -hmm. three orders. Um, so it's those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. Right? The clergy, okay. the nobility, slash knights, and the peasants. Now, obviously, it's way more complicated than that, because you have merchant class, and guilds, and all these mm -hmm. things, right? Um, but the idea was sort of that everyone should have a rule by which they abide, right? So clergy, obviously, have a rule, right? All the individual yeah. groups have rules, right? The rule of St. Benedict, the rule of St. Francis, whatever. Everyone has a rule. Um, and obviously, you know, if you do belong to a guild or something, they have rules. You're starting to have things like ecclesiastical mm -hmm. courts. Um, and, I mean, you've been having those, but ecclesiastical courts. And then obviously you start to have um, secular courts. Yeah. Which is where we get actual, like, rules and laws, right? So Henry II really revamps the courts. Oh, yes. All that stuff that we inherited as English common law is becoming yes. both common and law. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, so all this stuff is happening. And you're like, well, nobility slash knights also basically need a rule, right? Mm -hmm. There can't be people who are above the law. That seems reasonable. 
And so chivalry kind of starts out as an attempt to codify how knights are supposed to behave. Right? Um, and by knights, we could mean violent noblemen, or we might mean any sort of soldier who fights honorably. <laughs> uh, again, we have this tension as to what chivalry exactly means and who exactly it applies to. Um, the romances we're going to talk about next time, um, those are not necessarily, of course, the reality. Those are the ideal, right? But the ideal does exist in the Middle Ages, right? From the, like, the 1100s onwards, that ideal exists, right? So there are people putting that out into the world um, as an ideal, as literature, but also sort of as propaganda, right? This is what a knight should aspire to be. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, then in reality, of course, we have the issue that sometimes a knight, I mean, how can you aspire to be this ideal when you also have to like chat people up in battle? All right. So we have this problem. Uh, religion does have a lot to say about this because the clergy, of course, are still very powerful. Um, and as previously stated, don't believe in violence except mm -hmm. when they think it is necessary. Right. <laughs> um, so one of the early sort of uh, things, texts to comment on chivalry to really give us sort of sense of what maybe knights are supposed to be doing. Um, the Bishop of Lisieux, Etienne, he writes a livre de manière, um, essentially like, you know, book of manners, basically, uh, where he talks about the different estates, right? And sort of what each one should do. Um, and he thinks that knights should be moral, essentially, right? That he, mm -hmm. this is one of the places where he does set that out. So they should protect the peace. They should help the poor. Um, and the poor, you know, we're talking like orphans and widows and women. Yeah. And, and okay. also just the poor. But anyway. Um, and protect the peace. Again, of course, that means things like not let people fight each other who shouldn't be fighting, which doesn't necessarily include knights, but like no bar fights from random people, basically. Stuff like that. You know, stop right. thieves. Stuff like that. Um, but the most important thing for Etienne um, is that knights should be loyal soldiers of the church. Okay. Right. Um, so this is really where he's going with this. Um, that being said, it is really stressed that a good knight and a good leader doesn't let their land dissolve into chaos. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, we come back to like King Richard off it. He does not bring this up, but you know, the, the Robin Hood example where King Richard is off and everything has sort of fallen into chaos. Um, so obviously the church where the church goes with this, um, it really culminates with Bernard of Clairvaux, who ends up being St. Bernard. Um, 1090 to 1153 are the his guy they named the dogs after. Well, they named them after one of the monasteries. Oh, We should okay. be more specific. Yes, they're named after a specific monastery. Um, because they are very good dogs. That's true. Yes. And we do not want to necessarily saddle them with St. <laughs> Bernard, and we will explain why in a minute. Oh, okay. Even though, you know, he's a remarkable man in many ways. Mm -hmm. I do not want to in any way take away from he's an extraordinary guy in many ways. But here's the, the but, of course. Um... He advocates, this isn't quite the but here, um, he advocates for the Knights Templar and helps write their rule. Mm -hmm. And he sees them as this sort of true knight with kind okay. of a, a capital K, right? This is what a knight should be because they are meant to fight for Christianity. Mm -hmm. So in some ways for Bernard, a, 
what we would call a secular knight, which is to say a nobleman who is a knight, but who, you know, like England and France fighting each other in the Hundred Years' War, that is not what Bernard has in mind when he thinks of knights. Mm-hmm. Right? They're just messing around in the mud. No, a knight is fighting for God. Right? So the Knights Templar are what he sees as the true knight. Um, he writes um, a book, pamphlet, whatever, <laughs> sure. um, in praise of the new military, or the new knighthood, De Laude Novae Militiae. Um, and he preaches the Second Crusade. He's super into crusades, as you might have noticed yeah. by all of this discussion. He preaches the Second Crusade, which is like 1147 to 1150, kind of 1150, 1147 to 1150 officially. Um, it's a big fiasco. It's huge chaos. It's really horrible. Um, he becomes kind of humiliated by it. Um, but that's really what he thought that f- knights were for, right? So the fight, the crusades, that is, and that is, of course, another ideal that we have. Right? Yeah. The Knights of the Crusades, the Knights in Shining Armor fighting for Christianity. This is the whole idea of kind of the, the Red Cross Knight. It is worth pointing out, of course, Knights Templar today are probably best known for the fall of their order. Right? Right. Um, which is interesting because in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there is this Templar guarding the Grail. He's the mm-hmm. last of three brothers. He's bathed in this holy light. That is what the Middle Ages originally and certainly someone like St. Bernard thought of the Templars. Oh. Right? Men who didn't necessarily want to... And in this case, though, Spielberg adds his own bit of a twist, which is actually very medieval. Um, that they don't want to fight, but they are called by God to do what they must. Mm. Right? Um, and in this case, you know, he has to wait there for like <laughs> a thousand years. Good on him. Yeah. Um, he didn't even have a newspaper, man. Like... Nope. Jeez. Devotion. Right? Yeah. True devotion. Yeah. Um, but, that, but that is a real knight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And of course, Indiana Jones is Indiana Jones is the new knight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he is not noble, but he is learned. Learning is really important. We'll get to that in a sec. That's another side that's really important. Um, and he is theoretically there for sort of the right reasons, right? Because he's fighting the Nazis, basically. <laughs> so right. Um, it's it's seen as the new war, right? Um, and a better one, of course, because it really is a pretty cut and dried good versus evil in a way mm-hmm. that the Crusades 100% were not. <laughs> um, yeah, so so we get that sort of interesting moment. Um, but anyway, yeah, so St. Bernard, um, the sense of the Knights Templar as what knights should be. This is the ideal. This is what um, the ultimate point of being a knight is to fight for God, to go on a crusade. Um, didn't work out the way he'd hoped. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that's, so, yeah, the dog is named after the monastery. A specific monastery. Um, that not specifically took him. Took yes. breeding dogs, potentially? <laughs> um, I don't know what. Yeah. Is that, did they actually come up with the breed? I'm not actually hmm. sure. I have looked it up, but I have forgotten in the meantime. Everyone should totally Google it and find out. Okay. Yes. Um, but anyhow, so that's so that's sort of that beginning, right? The connection to the church, the connection to faith. Um, and therefore, also, that's why learning is so important, right? This idea that knights are called by God, and so they should be learned, <laughs> right? Um, in the old ways, right? That they mm-hmm. should have learning um, and morals and faith. And so it is seen as this sort of um, calling. All right, so then we have things like um, there's an anonymous 
old French poem from like 1220. Um, anyway, like before 1250, for sure. Um, that's called the Order de Chevalier. Um, it's fictional, but it's based on real events where Hugh, who's counter prince of Tiberius, um, he was taken prisoner by Saladin. In 1178 or 1179, this is before the Third Crusade, um, Saladin was making a move on the Crusader state in Jerusalem, which officially lasted from like 1099 to 1291, but Jerusalem itself falls to Saladin in 1187. So um, this is sort of the pregame Saladin moving in on Jerusalem. Um, there are definitely plenty of you know knights still down there fighting. Um, Hugh is taken prisoner by Saladin. That's all historical um and he's ransomed eventually by his family um you know yeah so that's the history but this poem changes the story a little bit Mm -hmm. um and in the story um saladin asks hugh to explain the ceremony of knighthood um and hugh does and saladin is so impressed (laughs) um that supposedly he sent hugh home with the price of his ransom right so instead of Mm -hmm actually taking the ransom from Hugh, gave him that amount of money and sent him home. Wow. That that part is not historical. Oh, <laughs> we wanna... Yeah. No, 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 no. Saladin was a freaking amazing dude. Um, and not an idiot. All right. But, um, so here's what the poem says. Okay. <laughs> about the ceremony of knighthood. Okay. Um, so first, and I'm going to say, I'm just quoting this out of Maurice Keene's chivalry, by the way. Page seven. So, um, first Hugh dressed Saladin's beard and hair. Then he brought him to a bath. This is a bath of courtesy and bounty, he said, and should recall to you the baptism of the child. For you come out of it clean of sin, or as clean of sin as the infant from the font. Right. Then he brought him to a fair bed to signify the repose of paradise, which is what every knight must strive to win. Right. Raising him, he dressed him first in a white robe, signifying the cleanness of the body. Over that, he threw a scarlet cloak to remind him of the knight's duty to be ready to shed his blood. So that's his blood, not necessarily others' blood, but of course that too. Mm. Um, at need in defense of God's church. All right, so shedding blood in defense of God's church, specifically. Um, then he drew on brown stockings to remind him of the earth in which he must lie in the end and to prepare in life for death. After that, he bound about Saladin's wrist, waist, sorry, he bound about Saladin's waist a belt of white signifying virginity, so to hold back lust. Then came golden spurs to show that the knight must be swift to follow God's commandments, um, as swift as a pricked horse, right? Um, Last, he girded him with the sword, whose two sharp edges are to remind the new knight that justice and loyalty must go together. Um, and the knight's task is to defend the poor from the strong oppressor. Hmm. There should have followed one more thing, which is a light blow from the hand of him who had girded the new knight. Right, so you get the knight's, the old knight who's knighting the new knight strikes the new knight once. But Hugh refuses to do this because as Saladin's prisoner, he can't strike his, quotes, master, right? Usually, uh, of course, the knight, yeah. the new knight is less in rank than the old knight, so it's right. fine. But in this case, he was less rank, obviously, than Saladin. Can't hit Saladin. All right. But anyway, but he did give him four commandments, which a newly made knight must be bound to for all of his life. He must not consent to any false judgment 
or be a party in any way to treason, he must honor all women and be ready to aid them to the limit of his power. He must hear when possible a mass every day, must fast every Friday in remembrance of Christ's passion. All right, so we've talked about fasting. <laughs> um, in this case, you have to hear mass. You got to help women, damsels in distress, right? Yeah. Um, all right. So there we go. So the, and a lot of things that come after that are variations on that idea of this ceremony. Mm -hmm. um, it frequently takes place in a church, right? So you get knighted. It's it is a very religious ceremony, even if you're not a knight templar, right? It is religious. It is deeply Christian. Um, and frequently does take place in a church. Sometimes you would stay up the night before praying, hear mass, mm -hmm. go through your ceremony. Yeah. Um, so this, so there we go, right? So this sense of it is, you know, there's a lot of, there's always a lot of question how much of it is purely fictional. <laughs> how mm -hmm. much of the sort of idea of the night in chivalry is purely fictional? And the answer is um, not all of it, for sure. You know, did all knights go through all this? Probably not. But absolutely, if you were knighted traditionally, obviously not today when you're knighted at Christmas by the queen or whatever, but traditionally, if you're going to become an actual knight with a horse and right. armor to fight for your king, um, yes, there was a religious ceremony, essentially, or a ritual at least, right? There was a religious ritual that you went through and you prayed and you heard mass and you did various things and promised various things. Um, so this this was deeply deeply part of it for sure um it'd be really funny if the queen needed to fight a war and she called up all of her knights and she got you know paul mccartney and elton john and <laughs> yes <laughs> Ringo. um yeah yeah that'd be well yes now of course it's just an honor right mm -hmm. and you, of course now you can win honor by doing things other than kill people gruesomely in battle. Right. I mean, so we have what, come a long way. You could way. be a knight on carpet considerations before, even, like, yeah. by Shakespeare's time, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, it's it's been... It's been a long time. Um, yeah. Really, when the Middle Ages ends, um, knights... Some knights are still expected to fight, but not all knights are. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can still absolutely be made a knight and not necessarily be expected to fight. At the same time, it is recognized even by Shakespeare that there was a time when all knights could theoretically be expected to fight, which mm -hmm. is why Falstaff oh, yeah. is called up to battle. Yes. Right? And of course, it's kind of ridiculous, but it is the recognition that there was a time when that was true. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, yeah, so... Uh, it does kind of go away at the end of the Middle Ages, but there, w but there was still this sense, right? Um, and if you couldn't go yourself, that you would pay other people to go, mm -hmm. which of course is something you could do. Um, the Civil War. I mean, Falstaff has a whole speech about it, how he um, goes around to people to draft them and make sure only to ask people who he knows will buy their way out, and then he takes the money and finds the most ragged person he can and pays ah, yes. them, you know, like tuppence and keeps all the rest of the money. Um, and then leads them all into the way of the cannon so that they'll get killed so he can keep all the money. Yes. Um, it's, and it's a really it's like, sort of horrible speech. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, cause of course it happened all the time, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, but in the Civil War, there was a, 
here, the U.S. Civil War, let, let me specify, <laughs> um, in the U.S.'s Civil War, um, there were even, you know, graft riots in New York, but a lot of it was because there was this sense that rich men were buying their way out and poor men had to fight. And of course, even now that we finally don't have the draft, that's still really what happens, right? The rich don't have to go into the army. Don't. But if you're poor, it might be the only way you can. Everybody registers for the draft, I guess. (sighs) Everyone registers. We don't have a draft, but we do have a registration if you're a guy of whichever ages, and I think they're going to add women, um, that you have to, yes, yeah, you have to register. Mm. Um, But they stopped it after the Vietnam War. Right. And it... That, but the point is, back. of course, that it could theoretically be reinstated, but it has mm-hmm. not been. And no one would presumably vote yeah. for it to be. It's hard to imagine how horrible something would have to be for that to get voted in. Yeah. Ironically, as we see the with U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan this week and the fall of yeah. Kabul, I remember yeah. that right around 9-11 was the last time people really talked about reinstating the draft. Yes, and the last time that a lot of people joined up, not because they had to, but because they felt it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Not the last time. I mean, people still frequently do. Plenty of people Mm -hmm. do join the military who are not required to economically. But it is still true that most people in the armed services are there there because it is a way for them to achieve, you know, things like college and home ownership that otherwise they may not be able to achieve mm-hmm. um so there is very much still an economics to it um yeah. yeah yeah and um i had friends who changed chained themselves to the um army recruiting office on campus when we were in uh-huh. college to protest this yeah yeah i mean you know <laughs> the problem that isn't the problem right i mean obviously you know, we need a standing army. <laughs> and the problem is that even when people do join, they're not necessarily treated the way we wish they were, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people who are not citizens should be given citizenship. That should not be a question. Um, I mean, the Romans did it. We can do it. Uh, there needs to be no sexual assault. <laughs> right. Women and people of color need to be promoted based on merit easily without all the stuff that they currently frequently go through. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot these of are all things that need to be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but yes. Well, so, um, but it, yeah. Anyway. On that um, note. But arguably these ideals are still a big part of the armed forces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that this is really sort of the the point is that these are still supposed to be those ideals, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, so next time we will sort of give a quick uh, summary reminder of some of the things. We'll bring up a couple other names of people who are like, "This is what chivalry is," with a quick summary, um, and then really delve into the romance, which you may have noticed <laughs> did not make an appearance yet in any of yes. our. Um, there is one writer who kind of mentioned love, but you'll notice the one comment was you should protect women and you should also avoid lust. Yes. But there has not been a lot of romance. Yeah. Okay. Which, of course, is what the Arthurian 
it's not why they're called romances, but it is where we get the idea of romance. Because um, mm-hmm. they are sleeping with everybody. So, <laughs> yes, you'll notice that doesn't make an appearance in real life so much in the chivalric code. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing so it may have among the actual knights, though. Not sure, oh, I, not yes. sure I buy that. I would say the same issues. Issue. Oh, no, no. I mean, the same issue that exists in the military today. Right. You know, 100%. There is the the knights who slept around, the knights who were faithful, the knights who slept around, but only with people who were very willing, and then definitely the other kind as well. All right. So, yep. But So the more things change. How it is. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. One day. One day. On that note... Thank you for talking to me, and thank you to everyone for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Ask a Medievalist, and we're on Twitter at Ask a Medievalist. Uh, You can check out our website, which is also the same, and there's a Contact Us form. If uh, you have ideas for other nights that we should talk about, yeah, I hope that everybody is getting their vaccines and washing their hands. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Keep it medieval. Hey guys, this is M jumping back in. Um, If you've made it this far and you enjoy my contributions to the podcast, you might be interested in some of my writing. I write things like either dystopian or utopian sci-fi poetry, depending on how you look at it queer historical romance, urban fantasy set in Madison in the 60s. Some of it will be coming out later this year, I hope, and I've started a newsletter so I can let people know when that happens. If you're interested in receiving those newsletters, go to tinyletter.com slash E-H Lupton, that's L-U-P-T-O-N, and you can sign up. I promise not to monetize you or disseminate you or anything like that and um i won't even know if you unsubscribe so that's tinyletter.com slash eh lupton and i'll put a link in the show notes thanks ask a medievalist is a production of this can't be that hard studios and is not endorsed acknowledged or condoned by virginia commonwealth university or any of its constituent departments our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.